Hey fellow interior designers and design lovers, welcome to the Daniel House Book Club. Together we're reading and discussing the eight books every interior designer and design enthusiast should have read according to Architectural Digest. For a complete reading schedule, visit our website, danielhouse.club, and click on the Club Bulletin tab. While you're there, consider becoming a member. Daniel House Club is a powerful tool that helps designers do more of what they love and less of what they hate. I'm the club's chief creative officer, Peter Spaulding, and I'll be your host. Today we leave Edith Wharton and Ogden Codman's 1897 classic, The Decoration of Houses, behind and travel 16 years forward to Elsie DeWolf's The House in Good Taste. In a lot of ways, this book feels similar to the one we've just left. It talks about the importance of simplicity in decoration, about proportion and architecture, and suitability. But in other ways, it's a totally new beast. In the last episode, I said Elsie DeWolf was like the Joanna Gaines of her day, except way chicer. But that may have minimized her gigantic shoes. It might be better to call her the Kim Kardashian of her day. In DeWolf, we see our modern concept of celebrity. She is often called America's first decorator, but she was so much more. She was a stage actress, a social connector, a publicity genius, I think, and a not-too-closeted lesbian, which didn't seem to bother many. In 1935, Paris critics named DeWolf the best-dressed woman in the world, as she did not cater to trends, but wore what suited her best. For those of you just finding us, Daniel House Club is the place where the job of interior design is made simple. Our members have access to wholesale pricing from over 75 great trade vendors. You can join as a free, pro, or pro-plus member, depending on the level of discount that fits your needs, and shipping is always 10% of your order. Once you become a member, be sure to check out your dashboard, which allows you to create furniture schemes with your clients and convert those directly into bills upon approval. Visit DanielHaas.club today and start spending less time and earning more money. And now, back to Peter. The book we are exploring now is as much about its author as it is about home, which is weird since we have to credit a ghostwriter here where we did not in the decoration of houses. That book was presented as the Bible, an unerring authority gifted to the world by a seemingly omnipotent being to be applied to all houses throughout all time. Here, we have the Im impression of Elsie just puttering away at home, trying things out with her equivalent of a glue gun and scotch tape. This is a book that oscillates between the real and an idealized world where, as the critic Penny Spark points out, its readers desire for a new interior and the elevated social status that came with it was as significant as the actual realization of one. I've not read Penny's article in full, so I can't comment on her exact meaning here, but to me this suggests the reader would think themselves elevated by the mere desire to have a nice house, and would not require its actual construction to maintain this sense of importance. I think it may be fairer to say the reader would feel elevated by the fact they possessed the knowledge of how to execute a new house well if the opportunity came to them. But before we go down a rabbit hole, let me say that my primary purpose in doing these readings is to expose us all to what is actually written on the pages of these books and to leave a lot of the discovery of context and criticism to all of you. Still, we can't really dive into our first chapter until we talk about the ghost writer of The House in Good Taste, whose name is Ruby Ross Wood. Wood was a little younger than DeWolf and quite a bit less famous, 
Though not poor by any stretch, she was not really of the same stratosphere as some of the other people we've been talking about so far. She would become a very important American decorator, but before this book was published in 1913, she was a journalist who wrote columns in both the Ladies' Home Journal and The Delineator, under the name of Elsie DeWolf. The articles she wrote in these publications were used to generate much of the content we are about to explore. To what extent Ruby and Elsie were of exactly the same mind, I'd require someone else with more knowledge to say. It's worth noting that shortly after the book came out, Ruby founded her own design firm called Modernist Studios, whose very modern persuasion turned out to be too ambitious for New York patrons. She then went on to run the decorating division of Wanamaker's department store. As a quick aside, imagine walking into Nordstrom today and asking to have your home decorated. The department store also had an antiques division with which she worked closely. What resources she must have had at her fingertips. Eventually, Ruby left Wanamaker's to found a successful firm of her own, and the most notable employee of hers was Billy Baldwin. Okay, with all this backstory in mind, let's embark. You'll notice right away there's a lot about the home being the woman's domain and her husband, though he lives there, always being invited into her world. While that's all very romantic, it's challenging to our contemporary minds. We're presented with an old ideal of life, which by the way, some people still live very happily, and that's fine, and others don't, and that's fine too. I'd like to add that I have almost never worked for a husband and wife duo where the man cared any less about what it all looked like than the woman did. To me, the intro presents the sort of thinking that led to the idea that a man should feel embarrassed to even notice if something is nice, and that a woman should do little else. What a waste. Man, woman, whoever. Either you see and cultivate beauty, or you don't. Men and women aside, what's terrific about this introduction is that it meets the reader right where they are. Titled Development of the Modern House, rather than launching into a set of rules or even an historical tale, it tells you how you will go from dreaming about your ideal house to making it happen. It really doesn't matter who you are, anything is possible. That's the tone anyway. There never was a house so bad that it couldn't be made over into something worthwhile, page four proclaims to the reader in their dumpy little quarters as well as their overwrought baronial castles. And... We will be so much happier when we learn to transform the things we love into a semblance of our ideal. That's great, the reader says to themselves. I have a partner in this, and she'll help me. Meanwhile, perhaps Elsie's we refers to a whole nation. Today, I think we could read this sweeping proclamation of transformation and reduce this to a self-help book. But that would be a mistake, because Elsie and Ruby are not offering a quick fix. This is going to require hard work on the part of their reader. They have a duty to teach themselves the lessons of sincerity and common sense and suitability, of what is meant by color, form, and line, harmony, contrast, and proportion. Through these lessons, the reader's vague ideas will clear into definite inspiration, and they will be ready to talk about ideals. Only when this happens have they become fit to approach the full art of homemaking. I've presented this in a little bit of a patronizing way, and it's not because I don't take it seriously. It's because I try to imagine myself saying all this to my own client, and them looking at me like, you halfwit, I just want a new kitchen, and I want it done as soon as possible. 
and in saying, yes, I'll have the drawings over for your approval by next Thursday, I've done us all a disservice. We'll create something very nice, and in 15 years, when there's a new type of counter available or some other trend at play, it will all get ripped out and replaced because I didn't take the time. No, I didn't have the confidence to take them on a journey that opened their eyes and helped them discern. They will unknowingly start from scratch and throw all our work into the ocean to be feasted on by sea turtles, but not Elsie DeWolf's readers. They will get so thoroughly sucked into the world she sees, they won't be able to avert their eyes. They will learn to express their individuality through careful, lifelong discipline, and perhaps Elsie's signature black and white marble floor in their entrance hall. Okay, now the reader slash client has been tasked with training their eye, and it's time for them to partner with a great architect who will help them realize their ideal. Plenty of readers won't be hiring an architect, and will transform by smaller, equally impactful measure. But for those who are hiring, Elsie and Ruby have some good advice. Hire a person you can imagine being friends with. That's very different from hiring a friend. It's about compatibility, and I imagine they'd say the same to a designer picking a client, which they have every right to do. The process of designing and building anything is a long one. If not a marriage, it's at least a long-term relationship, and you might have more conversations about money than you do with your actual spouse. To the client, pick someone who understands the kind of life you live or want to live and will design for that life. And to the designer, pick a client who lives or wants to live the sort of life you want to design for. Understand that you are in this process together, and the finished result will represent both of you as opposed painting represents the subject as seen through the lens of the artist. Together, don't conceive of this house as a series of designated rooms, but a place that expresses yourself and the life you want to have in the future. Don't try to make it Versailles, make it yours. So far, this chapter called Development of the Modern House has been all about how you and your architect are going to make your house. It would seem odd if there was no mention at all of how the contemporary idea of a house in 1913 came into existence. Here, the history is much less far-reaching than it was in the decoration of houses. It again returns to gender, saying that men designed their houses for constant parades and grand state entertaining, while women contributed smaller, cozier elements that made the house a home. It would be difficult to say our authors were wrong, but happily we in the Western world are no longer constrained by the idea that all men want pomp and all women want to make a cozy little house. The brief history is exciting and empowering, though, as it features important women going against the social grain from the 1500s onward and establishing a set of rooms that establish herself, beginning with the Grata of Isabella de Este and moving on to the Marquis de Rambier, whose whole life is identified as having been an expression of her awakened conscious of beauty and reserve, of simplicity and suitability. Hers, they say, is the earliest version of the modern house with its rooms of diverse size and purpose, colored with silvery hues, with its full, very comfortable bedroom suite and its new softly padded armchairs, Madame de Rambouillet's was a house conceived for comfort and conversation, modern activities in a world newly associated with leisure. The general point of this quick history is that a woman, not a man, gave the world the comfort we know today. And the problem of the 20th century person planning their home 
was that since the inception of this important house, there was nothing more to be done. Their job was to not mess it all up by filling their house with a bunch of crap, as the Victorians before them had done. To not fail to see beauty in simple, commonplace things and emulate those. The task at the end of this opening chapter is for the reader to empty their tables of junk, throw away any fake art, and put everything where it will actually be used and enjoyed with purpose. Together, Elsie and Ruby's readers would all make America beautiful for the first time. With long lead times continuing to affect designers everywhere, we've implemented a bi-weekly in-stock email. Join DanielHouse.club and receive regular updates about our tens of thousands of products that are ready to ship immediately. Your clients rely on you to deliver on time. Let Daniel House Club help you surpass their expectations. Now, back to the show. As we move on to the chapter called Suitability, Simplicity, and Proportion, it's hard not to feel we are reading the decoration of houses all over again. Except this time, we have a motto. Suitability, Simplicity, Proportion. Suitability, Simplicity, Proportion. Actually, in the decoration of houses, I think suitability is usually appropriateness. But you get the drift. To begin designing, we are prompted to imagine ourselves as the person who will occupy a set of rooms every day and ask ourselves this first question, just as we've heard before. Do the openings make sense where they are? Are the windows, doors, and fireplaces all aligned as they should be to provide views and put furniture where it can actually be used? Are all the things well scaled? These questions are more important than if any objects in the room are nice at all. After considering these things, Elsie and Ruby go right to comforts, but not the comforts you might think. They want to know if the lights will be positioned where you want them, by the fire, next to a chair or a bed, and not just right in the middle of the ceiling where they cast shadows over your head. How will the temperature be controlled? They were writing in an era of uncontrollable steam heat, so this was probably a bigger concern for them than it is for us. But still, thinking about a room's comfort based on how close or how far it is from a window to the outside will determine where you put pieces of furniture intended to sit on and relax. A guest of a house should be considered, and they should not be made to roast or freeze in their bedroom. There should be some way for them to control their comfort. Then Elsie and Ruby make this seemingly old-fashioned, but I think still pretty true statement. People come to your home and talk to you about the weather, but they're looking at the furniture. They're assessing you and your whole being through the choices you've made and the provisions you've allowed for them. Elsie and Ruby identify taste as the compass that never errs, as the highest signifier of character. It's very reasonable to hear this and think, geez, that's over the top. Then, if you think about the discussion we had last week about connoisseurship and how one's taking in of all kinds of objects from various points in history and the methods and cultures used to conceive them expands their ability to see and understand all sorts of perspectives, then it begins to sound a little less nuts. I'm not saying we should judge a person by their taste, and actually, plenty of the best people I know have really bad taste. But great compassion or hospitality or whatever attribute is really desirable in a friend. Still, I think that all of those attributes can be heightened by a great knowledge of objects. And this becomes a really good indicator of what's going on upstairs. So, not a dead giveaway as our authors claim, but taste can be telling. But Peter, you sound really judgy and mean. And yes, I am horribly mean. But seriously, let's take an example 
um, of what Elsie and Ruby say about the people of their own time, who were so preoccupied with reproducing and preserving furniture that vaguely represented the past that they couldn't just live. Today, we are so concerned that our things arrive immediately that we can't wait for something of good quality. Even as we stop using plastic bags and begin composting everything, we are content to buy cheap furniture that we actually intend to throw away in a few years' time. This feels pretty disingenuous. In the words of Elsie and Ruby, our ancestors had faith in the permanence they created. We have lost this happy confidence. And with our nervousness, they warn, we fail to inspire craftspeople of our era, who cannot create something really exceptional on the timeline proposed. If not the judgment we make of an individual, I imagine this will be the judgment history makes of our time. Now, if you or your client can wait, you don't need a lot of really great things. I love how they communicate this idea by saying the woman wearing fake jewels is less conspicuous than the one wearing too many real jewels at the wrong time. The job of decorating is one of reduction. Your job is to find a couple of really good, suitable objects and let the architecture of the rooms become the decoration. Another thing that makes the house in good taste a little more fun than the decoration of houses is that Elsie is talking a lot about the places she has lived and how she has transformed them little by little. And she includes photos of these things rather than of the most exceptional interiors in the Western world. I think studying exceptional places is really, really, really important, as the ideas found there can be distilled for simpler projects. But there's something nice about seeing a world-famous designer showing her own simple rooms. It makes the ideas feel more actionable. The first of Elsie's projects we get to see is the house she and her partner Elizabeth Marbury shared at 122 E 17th Street and Irving Place near Gramercy Park in New York City. It's an 1840s Greek Revival light row house with some sweet Victorian-era embellishments from a resident that lived there before Elsie and Elizabeth. And it's erroneously dubbed the Washington Irving House, as possibly Elsie herself began a rumor that the famous author once lived there. The house still stands, though the interiors are long since changed. These are the parts where it's difficult for me to know if we are hearing Ruby or Elsie's voice. Possibly careful study of Ruby's earlier columns would inform us, but whoever is speaking, we see them move to the practical a lot more quickly than our old friends Edith and Ogden did. And truthfully, suggesting some weirdly specific things, like converting a useless window seat into a little bubbling fountain, or using old French prints applied side by side at the top of a wall to form a frieze where there isn't one. But it's in these trials and errors that Ruby and Elsie hook us. This is a laboratory of ideas. They compare the process of reviving an old house to the process of reviving a garden, which I love. Gardening is the most humbling thing I have ever done. You can buy a whole bunch of beautiful shrubs and visualize them forming a dense hedge, only to find them dead in a month, despite all the conditions seeming to have been fine. It's not cheap to fail in this way. Too many times and you begin to feel like a serial killer. While furniture and finishes and art objects don't die, they can look very different than we anticipated they would when they're all chilling together in a given space. As our clients rely on us to tell them everything will turn out beautifully, we have to have some way of knowing ourselves that this will be true. Elsie knew her ideas would work because she tried them in her own laboratory, and she watched as her guests responded to them. I imagine there were plenty of dead shrubs before her garden really blossomed.
Personally, I don't really like a lot of the pictures I've seen of the interior of the Washington Irving house when Elsie lived there, but I love hearing about what she was thinking and how she was planning for the way her life worked. I don't want to jump ahead, but I do think the transformation of her dining room is particularly interesting. And we have photographs of the room at multiple stages and of its progression, from heavy Victorian monstrosity to a much lighter, more angular, French-influenced room that really represented where Elsie was headed as a designer. This willingness to share the progression strikes me as so 2021. Getting to watch ideas unfold is really so much more exciting than just enjoying the finished product. Okay, that's it for this week, and I hope you'll join me next week as we see Elsie progress toward maturity in another of her own houses, and as she and Ruby tell us their thoughts on wall treatments and the effective use of color. I'll see you then. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Daniel Haas Book Club. Again, please visit danielhaas.club and click on the Club Bulletin tab for a complete schedule of this season's readings. While you're there, consider becoming a club member. Apart from all the benefits you've already heard about, our members now also receive our quarterly print catalog, which features selected member projects, seasonal product curations, articles on managing a design business, and much more. Become a member and watch your design business thrive. Uh, uh, uh.